Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, it's great to see uh, each of you here this morning. This is our Mission Sunday, and as I was talking to a couple members of the Missions Committee about what we would talk about, we thought we'd go back to sort of the original issue that drives us to have a heart for people everywhere in the world, and that's the issue of the lostness of humanity. And one of the things that's going on is that theological concept is being radically eroded in the modern theological landscape. And so we're going to spend some time kind of talking about that and re-engaging with the scriptures that talk about that. And I'll introduce uh, my two guests here in a couple of moments. A number of years ago, uh, I attended Bible college in a little town called Dunbar, Wisconsin, which really doesn't even exist on a map hardly. It's way out in the boonies. But it was a little Bible college that actually came out of a Bible camp And it was, like many Bible colleges, truly a ministry training school. And what I mean by that is we didn't have business majors and other majors. We had people coming there who mostly wanted to be pastors and missionaries. And that was sort of the early Bible school movement. We had mandatory daily chapel, and they took attendance. And on Fridays, I believe it was Fridays once a month, We met in groups that corresponded with overseas mission agencies. So we literally would get in our groups of five to ten people. We would write letters to missionaries. Remember, this was in an era where there was no email. There there were no cell phones. uh, Dinosaurs roamed the earth. So this is sort of a, you know, just after the prehistoric age. And uh, we would do that. We wrote letters, had to put stamps on them. Those of you who are under 40, I don't know if you know what a stamp is. But we did all that back then. Missions conferences were week-long events with evening services. I mean, we had to go to church every night during missions conference. We would have had chapels that had missionary speakers. And students during that missions conference were highly encouraged to commit to a life of overseas service. That was the theme. And the motivation to do all that was that we believed that people are lost. That's the word that Jesus used that people were lost and they were headed for separation from God in eternity. Therefore, they needed the salvation that Jesus offered through the cross. We believe that heaven and hell were real, that God is a holy God and he must judge sin, that there's only one way to heaven, that people need to be converted to that way, and that reality was most of Christianity Everything we would refer to as orthodox or conservative Christianity agreed with that. There really wasn't a controversy about that. Today, Northland Baptist Bible College does not exist. In fact, they actually tried to give the campus to the Southern Baptists to start one of their schools there as sort of another campus, and eventually that was turned down. Couldn't even give the campus away, along with hundreds of other similar institutions that are no longer in existence. And what also disappeared with Northland Baptist Bible College is the theological landscape that I just described. 
Again, when I spoke to the missions committee, we settled on this theme, are lost people really lost? Because if they aren't, we really don't have a reason to be involved in missions. And we are losing our motivation as a Christian culture for missions and worldwide evangelism. So today I've got two guests with me, John Feniak. Uh, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Okay, so my name is John Feniak. Uh, my wife, Juanita, is here, and we're with Wycliffe Bible Translators. My current role is a development officer for Western Canada, so I connect with donors and churches and, and help them to connect with our work in the field and our people in the field. And for 10 years, Juanita and I were in Thailand, working in Thailand and Burma, Myanmar, and the countries in that area. And Wycliffe... Sounds like, because we're connected to it, we'll talk about that a little later, an organization that believes in a lost humanity and their need for Jesus, right? I mean, it was the reason they founded the ministry, to get the gospel in people's languages through translation. I also have with me Jojo Ruba. Many of you know Jojo maybe a little better. He's been around here with me on the platform. And Jojo, I want to talk about what's eroding our motivation to reach the world. And I introduced this a few weeks ago when we talked about sort of pluralism and philosophical pluralism. And so, Jojo, just talk about for a second what's happening to the concept of truth and whether there can be, whether any religion can have a superior claim to truth today, sort of in the culture we live in. And first, tell us what you do and who you are. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, well, Jojo Room, I'm a local Christian apologist, and apologetics is not just about, you know, saying sorry a lot because we're good Canadians. It's actually providing a, a reasonable defense for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect from 1 Peter 3.15. And that's what we spend a lot of time training. I spend a lot of time training young people and, and others to be able to explain our biblical worldview in a way our culture can understand. And if that's if that translation, Pastor Paul, that's the problem, is that the idea that we believe something is true can now be deemed as offensive, particularly when it comes to religious truth. Because we now have access to people from all over the world. And hey, we know the Muslim lady across the street and the atheists down the block. And they're nice people and they're good and they do all kinds of good things. So who are we to say that our worldview is somehow superior or better? And so even in the church, this idea has become so prominent that 47% of millennials, according to a Barna study, Barna Institute study, now believe that there's something wrong with evangelism. And these are church-going Christian-identified young people. And by something wrong with evangelism, you mean they believe it is wrong to try to convert another person to it's your faith? It's wrong to change one person's worldview to the one that you adopt as your own. Okay. So do you understand the problem we've got here? The world is basically telling us it's inappropriate to try to convert another person, yet we've got this command from Jesus to make disciples of all nations. So what we actually are trying to do, what we're commanded to do is now... I mean, the gospel's always been somewhat offensive, but it's extremely offensive in the Western world today, which means that we are a shrinking minority position. All three of us up here, uh, a development officer for a conservative missions agency, an apologist, and a pastor, we are, we are dinosaurs. And uh, young dinosaurs, but we are dinosaurs in the sense that we are in a shrinking movement for all of us that uh, as far as uh, it relates to truth and trying to convert people to the gospel. All right, so I want to uh, do something here. I'm going to read a passage of scripture because we've been here before. 
And I want you to take your Bibles here. We're going to kind of, we're doing a few things here. We're going we're to kind of do an interview. We're going to kind of do a short sermon. We're going to weave the sermon into the interview. And, and we practice this, so I think we're going to be able to pull it off. But we do want to connect you with one of the key passages on this issue. And so if you'll get to your New Testament about a quarter of the way through, your pew Bible, three quarters of the way through, page 84, the gospel of, uh, or I should say Luke wrote this, the gospel writer, but it's Acts, his second volume in his two-volume set, Acts chapter 4. So Acts exists to help us understand how the church exploded from being sort of Jewish, because Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, and how it became a worldwide religion. Without Acts, you wouldn't understand that. So Acts chapter 4, in it we've got a verse that is one of the most exclusive verses in the Bible as it relates to truth claims and faith in Jesus alone. So Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. So the temple guard is like temple police. It's like a security force that was in the temple made up of probably large Jewish men who were there to sort of enforce it. So the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, to Peter and John, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. So many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, if you're keeping track, earlier, after the church was born on Pentecost, 3,000 had come to faith. Now it's 5,000 men plus their families. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. So now this is the Sanhedrin. This is sort of the Jewish high court, sort of like a supreme court. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire. So they've got this uh, uh, sort of this litigation setting going on. They put Peter and John in the center along with the guy that they had healed. They placed them in the center. They began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, by the way, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And here's the verse. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But so it will not spread any further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name, the name of Jesus. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now after that, there were some threats made, and there's actually sort of a legal precedent going on here, which I'm going to talk about in a few moments, but there were some threats made. They went back, they had a prayer meeting with the early church, 
You know what they prayed for? Confidence, boldness to speak the name of Jesus regardless of the cost. So we're just going to walk through two themes that are in this passage and sort of talk about what we're struggling with in our culture today as it relates to being Christians in an increasingly secular world. First, salvation is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, this verse that I just read is much like John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. This is one of the most exclusive claims in all of the New Testament about salvation being through Jesus and Jesus alone. But it is not stopping theologians and people teaching in Bible college and seminaries and people sitting on platforms like this from eroding its most basic intentions. So I want to look at, we're going to walk through some contemporary attacks on sort of Acts 4.12 and this one way through Jesus principle. And I said these are contemporary. The reality is Many of these have been alive for a long time. They keep getting sort of defeated intellectually, and they keep recirculating and coming back. But all of these things are being taught or are problems in the theological culture of Christianity today. The first one is that all religious ethics are basically the same. That you can go to, you know, world religions, and if you pick one, you're basically picking another because they're all basically commanding uh, the same thing. And I want to talk to both uh, John and, and Jojo about this from different angles because John you've uh, seen some things overseas that relate to sort of this all religions are the same and I want you to talk about maybe I think you've got some background and sort of the, the supernatural nature of how God calls people that's different from other religions so tell us that story. Yeah so one story I wanted to share with you is from northern Thailand and we had a language project up there doing a New Testament with a, a small group uh, mainly rice farmers and there was a man in this group uh, that we met at the village. He um, was kind of known as a vile kind of man, probably didn't really follow any religion, and sold his two daughters, his two teenage daughters, into a brothel, and was, was generally the kind of person that you would think wouldn't be interested at all in God. He came up to um, our lead translator while I was with him, and he, he said, I had a dream, and I want you to help me understand what this dream is. In the dream, I came to this large walled city and there was a man at the gate with a large book. And when I tried to get in, he looked in the book and he said, my name's not in the book. Can you tell me what this dream means? So our translator uh, got a Thai Bible, translated from Thai into his language, the story in Revelation about the city and the book of life and what that meant. So this is, you know, we talk about um, our opinions about religions and, and choosing and all of that, but in the meanwhile, God is doing things, and this is just one of many stories where we see God at work reaching out to people in supernatural ways and pointing to, I think, um, where, where we can find the real answers using the scriptures as a, as a means for reaching people. So that's a situation where uh, one of the unique things about Christianity, and, and I think we don't see this in the Western world much, but when you get overseas, this is actually quite common. In fact, uh, Muslims who come to faith in Jesus, because in Islam, I believe the way that we're supposed to connect with God is through dreams uh, or something like that. I'm, I'm not an expert on Islam, but I believe that's why this is going on. You're supposed to connect with God through dreams. People who are seeking God are having 
visions of Jesus. Now in Islam, they, they recognize Jesus as a prophet. There's respect for him, but they don't believe he's the son of God. And since they believe God is to minister to them through dreams, God is cooperating with that view, if you will, and giving them visions of Jesus as son of God, and then they're pursuing that and coming to faith in Jesus in a pretty regular way. That's a unique thing about Christianity because God is a part of it. It's God's word. It's God's truth. But the other thing I want to talk about is, you know, Jojo, why don't you, you know, are all religions created equal? Talk to me about that from an apologetic standpoint. Yeah, so I was actually uh, opening up a bank account for a ministry a few months ago, and we were talking to the bank teller, and it turns out she came from a Muslim background but had left the faith, was really upset about it. And, and so we got a chance to talk about Jesus, which is, of course, a great thing if you're a, an apologist. And, and she articulated this, this idea, Pastor Paul, that all religions basically believe the same thing. All of them really teach the same thing. And, and it turns out she held what is, I think, one of the most common religious worldviews today, moralistic therapeutic deism. And what that is is that religion is something that gives you morality. It's therapeutic. It helps you feel good. And it's deism because you get to shape God in your image. You get to tell him what you want. And whether you label yourself a Muslim or a Christian or whatever, this is your religious view. And it's no wonder there's no need for evangelism if this is what everybody believes in or if everybody basically believes the same thing. What I was able to tell her, though, is the problem is not the similarities. The problem is the differences. It's like if you have two white tablets in your palm and one is aspirin and the other one is arsenic and you have a headache, which one would you choose to fix your headache, right? It doesn't, in this, in this case, it doesn't matter what you feel about that religion. It matters what it is, what the facts is, are. And one of the points I made to her was, you know what, Christianity is one of the few, if not the only religion in the world that you can disprove from its own holy text. And it's found right there in Corinthians when Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is foolish. We are to be most pitied of all mankind. And right there I said, here is a faith that actually cares about facts. That's, that's what makes it very different from all the other worldviews. Yeah, even if every religion on the planet, by the way, how, it depends how bad the headache is, which one of those I'm gonna take. I, I, I'm kind of stuck back there in your story a little bit. Sorry. All right, so... This is what they deal with every week. I'll um, pray for you. All right. So even if every religion had the Ten Commandments in it, and even if they were all from Moses, you know, even if everyone said, okay, here's Moses' Ten Commandments, and, and we agree, Buddha agrees, you know, Muhammad agrees, everyone agrees, Confucius agrees, we've got the Ten Commandments. The problem is that's not a solution to anything. They just demonstrate our sin. Only in Christ do we have a Savior, do we have a real solution. That is, as Jojo said, it's not the difference, it's not the things that are the same that matter, it's, it's, it's the difference. All right, I want to go through a couple more technical things, though. Universalism is making a big comeback, and universalism basically believes that we're all going to end up in heaven one way or another. And if that's true, I think it would, I would agree, we would lose our motivation for missions. Wouldn't you agree? If everyone's going to heaven anyway, you know, why really spend the time trying to convert anybody? So universalism through Jesus' atonement would be basically a view that all religions really lead to Jesus, and even if people don't understand Jesus in this lifetime or know the gospel, when they get into the afterlife, Jesus, the cross, Jesus' atonement, will cover them because God's basically going to reward everyone for their sincerity or good attentions. And so that's basically universalism through Jesus' atonement. 
And then there's universalism through a post-death opportunity. All of you know the verse, you probably heard the verse um, that someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So a universalist today would just kind of rip that out of context, even though the Bible commands us to believe in this lifetime and say, after life, everyone will be presented with Jesus, and of course, everyone will acknowledge he's the Son of God. The problem is the warnings to believe before we die are so relevant in the scriptures, it's obvious what we believe in this life is what matters. I agree, everyone in the afterlife will know the truth, but historic Christianity teaches it'll be too late. Annihilationism, Jojo, why don't you tell us about annihilationism, because you said that's making a comeback. Well, yes, it's even in, within Christian circles, the idea is rather than having someone be tortured in hell forever because of one little sin that they committed, they will just cease to exist. And, and my response to that is that this is a revisionist view. This is what's saying where we decide what the Bible teaches, what God teaches based on our own moral standards. Unfortunately, we are not allowed to do that if you're a Christian. It should be the opposite. The Bible revises us. And, and I also point out that when people take this annihilationist view, Pastor Paul, what they're actually saying is that they don't understand the extent and the damage of sin, how seriously our Lord takes sin. In fact, it costs his life to deal with sin. He gets to set the standard for what the punishment is for sin, not us. The other things would be um, sort of scripture as propaganda. In other words, the scripture writers are trying to get people, trying to create fear to get people to follow the, uh, their God, etc. But not that scripture is inspired, which is you know sort of deconstructionism. Either God couldn't get his message through the human authors, or the human authors pretty much were just telling us what they wanted to say to get us to follow God. But they would just say it's really not God's word. So typically, this is a part of progressive Christianity. There's just a low view of scripture. And, and if, if we really don't have Scripture as God's Word, which we just spent two months talking about, then, then I would agree. We all get to make up the God we want. But I believe it is God's Word. So those are just some of the attacks going on, uh, sort of theologically. But if you believe those things, they erode any motivation we have to try to reach people uh, around us. Now, the story that I read for you, we're going to get back to that. This was interestingly spoken to people who believe in the true God. So if any group of people should have gotten a pass, if the apostles should have been really easy on any group of people for not being excited about Jesus or embracing Jesus, it would have been this group of people because they were devout um, Orthodox Jews. They believe in the same God we, we believe in. Our Old Testament is their scriptures. And so, you know, we are basically a subsect of Judaism. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Christianity comes out of that movement. So what's interesting is Paul wasn't, or I should say these apostles weren't sort of talking in Acts 4.12 to a group of people who come out of pagan, Roman, or Greek religions. He's actually talking to, Peter and John are talking to Jews who believe in the same God they do, but we're not accepting Jesus as the Son of God with his sacrifice. So if anyone should get a break, it should have been them. And they're saying, no, there's no salvation without Jesus. And the whole Bible is full of admonitions about falsehood in the religious realm, and which is interesting because it's like we ignore that today. But the Bible is just full of it. Old Testament commands to abandon false gods, warnings about false prophets in the Old Testament, warnings about false teachers in the New Testament. The understanding 
that most of the religious context in the world at any given point is going to be false. That's basically understood in Old and New Testaments. So let's talk about the impact of, of sort of Jesus on how committed these early disciples were to sharing their faith, because that's where it gets uncomfortable for us. True Jesus followers recognize their responsibility to carry the message no matter the cost. So in the sermon, the point was it's Jesus and Jesus alone. But one of the reasons Luke included this passage, and possibly the primary reason, is to help us understand how the early church grew and actually thrived in a hostile, hostile culture and how those early Christians felt they needed to be faithful to, uh, that, to, to the gospel, even in that persecution. So what happened here, which you don't see in this chapter, is Peter and John healed a guy who was about 40, says later in the passage. So they went to the temple. There's a, what's called the Gate Beautiful. It's one of the gates that goes into one of the courtyards, which was part of the Jewish temple area. This area covered many, many, many acres. And there were, there were like walls and gates to go from one courtyard to another. The Gate Beautiful is a gate where this guy would sit every day, and I believe he would uh, beg for alms or for money. So everyone knew him. This wasn't somebody who came in for Pentecost, which was the recent Jewish feast, and, and, you know, he wasn't known. Every devout Jew who went to temple on a regular basis knew this guy. They probably knew his name. He was a fixture there. And he'd been crippled forever. He was a crippled man at the gate beautiful every day. So when the disciples are coming up to him, a couple of them, Peter and John, he, he asked them for money. And they said, well, we don't have any money for you, but what we do have, we'll give you. And they said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Well, this dude got up, and he was excited. The Bible says he was leaping and dancing. I'm not thinking like high school musical dancing, but he's dancing. He's leaping. Everyone sees him. They all know him. This is sort of an undeniable situation. So Peter and John, this story gets around. Peter and John then give a sermon, and they sort of rub salt in the wound. You know, this came about because of Jesus, you know, whom you crucified, by the way, not long ago, who then rose from the dead, told you so. You know, they kind of rub it in a little bit. But it's the gospel. They're arrested. Now, the people behind the arrest are actually priests, which is interesting because I didn't realize how much this is the case, but many of the priests come from a Sadducean background. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, which is why they were Sad, you see. Okay, sorry, just had to do that. John actually remembers a Sunday school song from when he was little about that. You want to? I'm not going to sing it, no. All right, all right, all right. I would have, but we don't have time. Anyway, so they're, they, you know, they're, they're against Peter and John because Jesus and the resurrection are, are new theology. And so one of the reasons they throw Peter and John in sort of church jail overnight is... They're preaching the resurrection. And the priests of that day did not preach the resurrection. So the temple guard jailed them. And the next day, and this is when the story gets interesting, the Sanhedrin is trying them. So then you get all the sort of the big honchos, the religious guys from uh, the different sort of groups, the elders, uh, some of the scribes, those who sort of wrote about Old Testament law, some of the Sadducees who had been high priests. They make up the Sanhedrin, which is like a Jewish supreme court. And they're trying them. They pull them in the center, probably, of a, of a half circle. They've got them there, uh, I believe, with the man who had been healed. And this is actually an interesting situation legally because my understanding is Jewish courts could not convict somebody of something they would have had no idea was wrong. 
So there's sort of a warning before incarceration. You can actually see this going on. When it says they recognize in the apostles that they're untrained and uneducated men, what it likely means, we look at it like, oh yeah, they weren't seminary guys, they just knew Jesus. That's the way we look at it. No, no, no. What they mean is they did not understand that they were breaking the law. And so then they're giving them this first warning, you can't go around preaching Jesus anymore, to which they refuse and say, sorry guys, I think we have to obey God. They pray for boldness, and then in the next chapter, which we're not looking at, they're in trouble again, and the guys say, we warned you. So they're establishing a legal precedent in Acts 4. This is going to be illegal. You can't do this. In Acts 5, they're coming up with the charges again. We warned you not to do this. So it was hard to be bold, but it was the job. You know what? It's hard to be bold, and it's the job. Nothing has changed. Not just for the missionaries, but for the Christian. Carry your cross, is what Jesus said. You want to follow me? Be willing to carry your cross. Be willing to die for it. It applies to everybody. John, you've got some persecution stories I want you to share with us about what it means today overseas to carry your cross. So uh, I'll tell you a couple stories. So one, one story in Southeast Asia, that region, uh, I met a woman who was from a family uh, community that was a Muslim, Buddhist, uh, animist-type uh, mixed culture, and she chose to become a Christian. She was kicked out of her home, family, kicked out of her community, and that she's living the, the life of of this uh, making bold choices for faith. She didn't have anywhere really to go. She, there's there are very few churches where she's at. Um, I met with her and I said, where, where are you getting spiritually fed? Where do you go to church? And she said, I, I don't have a church. And I asked, you know, who will teach you? And she said, we don't, I don't really have very many people. Would you come and teach? Would you and your wife come <laughs> live in this area? So she made a bold choice. And later, um, she made another bold choice to work with Wycliffe and start doing Bible translation and working especially with oral Bible stories because those are not uh, necessarily looked on very favorably there. And then she made another bold choice, putting that on Facebook, and people started reading it. And one of the people was a judge from that region, someone with a lot of power. He contacted her and said, I want to speak with you. So he they got together and he asked about her faith and she shared her faith journey. And he said, I want to share about my faith. And he said, he explained that he was from the local religion, but he had a dream. And I mean, I don't want to get you the impression that everybody we talk to and all our work is based on dreams, but there's a couple of dream stories. In this one, this judge uh, had a dream that he went to hell and in hell, there was someone with a book, and that book they were using to judge people. So he shared this dream with her, and she shared about uh, what she knew about the scriptures and judgment, and he said, I get it. Like, I'm a judge. I know how this works. This makes total sense to me. And he says, I want to become a Christian. And she said, no, you need to go and think about this. Because this is a, in, in this culture, this is a, a, a real commitment that's going to cost you. So he went away and thought about that. 
and eventually came back and became a believer. But this, uh, this really, it just echoes the passage about um, uneducated people that um, are bold, that are filled with the Holy Spirit, and somehow God gives them enough to be a witness in their communities, and I, I was really encouraged by that. Another story is from Ethiopia. I traveled with one of our translation advisors. We drove across the Great Rift Valley to a community where um, they were translating a New Testament. And I asked the fellow to tell me a story. Where did, where did you come from? And he said, well, I come from a Muslim background. And when I became a Christian, the local leaders came to me and they surrounded me and they said, you need to convert back. And he said, I can't do that. And they said, you need to convert back or we will kill you. So he fled them, went to his home, and they had already gotten there. And his father was there and amongst them. And his father spoke up and he said, you need to convert back. And he said, I, I can't do that. And then his father said, you need to convert back or I will kill you myself. Get, get me my spear. So he fled again and was living with um, a small group of Christians working in this church secretly translating the scriptures those scriptures were going out on the airways radio and the local people were furious were wondering where this was coming from and um, eventually his mom became a quiet believer but again just an example of, of living your faith and just I asked him what are you translating right now and he said I'm translating Ephesians I said what are you learning about and he said I'm learning how to be a better father and husband and I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, this could be a guy at one of our breakfasts, you know, a bunch of guys getting together and talking about our faith, except that he's running for his life and he's made choices that are much more bold than I've made. So around the world, I don't, I mean, I know those are very interesting. Some of you aren't surprised by that. Some of you probably are surprised by that. That's the price for following Jesus. But we're also starting to pay a, an increasing price and the threat of a price uh, in the Western world. And Jojo, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of some of where your work is recently and what's happened even in Canadian law at the federal level and even the city of Calgary a little bit, just about what it looks like to just be faithful in teaching God's truth. Well, as some of you might have heard, there was a conversion therapy ban that was passed criminal law just last year. And most people think conversion therapy is just electroshock or all these awful things. But the way they defined it is... And give the context for conversion therapy. That would be... Sure. Conversion therapy is defined as trying to change someone's sexual orientation from gay to straight. And it's only one way banned. And, and unfortunately, the way Canada's laws have worded it, unlike any other ban in the world, I've looked at over 80 definitions, includes simply reducing unwanted non-heterosexual behavior. So for example, if I were to call a local uh, counselor here, a Christian or pastor, and say, I have a porn addiction, can you help me? That pastor could only help me reduce my heterosexual porn addiction, but not my homosexual porn addiction. And if he tried to do that, he could go to jail for five years and be fined under Calgary's bylaw $10,000. Simply giving a phone number for a Christian counselor now could, find, could, could have you go to jail for three years for advertising conversion therapy. And people think these are sort of issues in the periphery. These are not as important as the gospel itself. But think about it. The gospel is about changing, transforming our worldview and turning around so our behavior now reflects what we believe. 
And now if you're saying that to an LGBTQ person, that could potentially be construed as conversion therapy, as criminal law. And, and I think it's important for us to really understand that when these kinds of issues come up, our first reaction is to not talk about these issues. We can just focus on things that people like and that people still believe Christians are good people. The challenge is what many people have come to talk to me about is that as one, one lady said in a professional a business environment downtown, two of her non-Christian co-workers believe that she is a, knows that she's a Christian and believes she hates gay people because she's a Christian as an automatic belief. And so we really need to understand that before we plant seeds, we need to till soil. We need to remove the rocks and weeds that are preventing those seeds from growing in the first place. And one of them is this really critical area that we need to provide a biblical answer for, again, for the hope that we have. Because I believe the gospel is still good news for everyone, including the LGBTQ community. So the world has changed. Where the landscape or what people, the price that people pay is no longer necessarily just overseas. In fact, I have no doubt that in the last year, um, I could have been fined, and I don't know if we would have paid the fine. I don't know if the elders would have paid it. They might have just let me go to jail and visited me with Meals on Wheels, depending on the month. But uh, anyway, no, I think they got my back on that stuff. But no, seriously, I'm sure I've said things in the last year that probably broke the law, just telling the truth. And when I had JoJo up here last year during missions conference, I guarantee we broke the law. But nobody filed a complaint. That's the world we now live in. And there are a lot of people that think there just needs to be a legal precedent that this needs, somebody needs to get um, accused of this, somebody needs to be thrown in jail, and they're not sure that Canada's, your version of the Supreme Court, would back that up. I'm not sure I want to be the test case. But the laws as they stand now basically are saying you cannot discourage any kind of non-heterosexual behavior uh, in any way. So that's the world we live in. But based on what Acts 4 says, it doesn't matter, does it? It just doesn't matter. Jesus predicted this. This is the world we live in. We will always carry a minority view on heaven and a minority view on ethics. We're never gonna fit into this world, and oh, do we want to. I, I know I don't act like it, but I really want people to like me. I really do. Don't try that hard sometimes, do I? But I really do. I want people to like me. But you know what? As a Christian, our number one job is not to get people to like us. We should be winsome. We should be good people to be around. But we're never going to have the popular view in the world we live in. So I want us to close with a few practical things that we need to do. So a Christian response to a lost world. First, own my responsibility to all nations. So what do I mean by that? Here's what I'm saying. You are responsible, you personally are responsible to make sure that you are having a part in getting the gospel to every person on the planet. And I said, what do you mean by that, Paul? And how would I do that? You inherit, along with every generation, the command to go and make disciples of all nations. We all inherit that command. When we, when we read scripture, we're like, yeah, that one's for me. Yeah, that one's for me. And that one was just for Moses. This one's for all of us. We know it, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. So we all own the responsibility for the person next door and the person in Thailand and, and in Africa that you referred to. We own the responsibility for everybody. So how do we do that? Well, here's how. For those far away, since it's my responsibility, I need to go 
or I need to send others. If I'm supposed to be involved in this process, I need to go myself or I need to send others. I've given my life to trying to tell people about Jesus, you know, in, here in the Western world. But as a part of that, I recognize I'm responsible for people overseas, so I need to send others as well. And I just want to talk about how we do that here, because if you're a part of Bethany Chapel, as you give, you are doing that. We've got you participating in that process. I think roughly 15% of our general fund plus some other offerings goes to, to support missions. And uh, I want to talk about what we're doing there. And first, I want to give uh, John a chance to say what we're doing with kingdom friendships. Now, John is involved with Wycliffe, and we, a number of years ago, adopted sort of a, um, Thailand and our, and our ministry there as a way that we can reach the gospel. Tell us what we're doing in, in Thailand there, John. Okay, well, a lot, of, a lot of people here know a lot of the details. Some of you may not, though. Some of you may be newer to the church. But we have what we call a kingdom friendship with Bethany Chapel and Wycliffe, Thailand and Wycliffe, Canada. So this is uh, more than just a transactional approach to missions. It's a relationship. It's been over years, it's been growing. And Bethany has been involved with Wycliffe, Thailand and Wycliffe, Thailand through your support has been reaching out to that country and the countries around it uh, through connecting with the local church training them about missions. The, the church in Thailand is still quite young in many ways. There's less than 2% Christians in Thailand. Many of the people that we work with are first generation Christians and many of the people at Wycliffe Thailand are. Wycliffe Thailand recruits for missions. They train for missions and they send and they support them. They're, they're an integral part of keeping the missions alive in Thailand in the region with the local people. And they've been involved in Bible translations in saving the lost, in baptisms, in literacy work and other language-related work that just helps improve the quality of life and safety and health of these people. And you folks have been a huge part of it. Thank you for your giving. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for taking the time to build relationships. Many of you have had people from Wycliffe, Thailand come and, and be part of your lives here, stay in your homes and do life together. Some of you have gone to Thailand and, and been a part of the life there and been in their homes. So thank you for uh, that partnership. It's been a real blessing to many people and we're, we're frankly really proud of you and very thankful for you. And so as a part of that, just to, as a segue, one of the things that we're doing here over the next uh, few weeks is we have a special offering. If you want to designate specifically to this Kingdom Friendship, we'll keep that fund open for a few weeks. It's, it's really open all the time, but especially the next couple of weeks. And every year we have a, an amount of money we send to uh, Wycliffe, uh, Thailand. And so we, we give some of that through the general fund, and we also support that through special offerings. So just be aware, if you want to do that in the next couple of weeks, just mark your check or envelope uh, Kingdom Friendships or Wycliffe, Thailand. I think either one would, would be sufficient there who might not have a lot of formal training, maybe they have some, and it's just a way of, of accentuating their gifting and help them be more effective in their local congregations in Central and South America. And we have Vanessa Cordopal. She um, serves on the national leaders team for InterVarsity. She's a part of our congregation. She disciples youth and young adults as the national director for high school ministry. And uh, one of our missionaries coaches and equips pastors who serve churches that are being persecuted uh, in Southeast Asia. And you all know who I'm talking about, but we're not mentioning names in persecuted areas there. Janet Height, 
uh, Hate uh, serves with SIM Canada, and uh, she's in Canada now, but she has a history of being in uh, Burkina Faso, where she's still working and uh, has served for a number of years. And also, we have a young lady. Uh, she's helping coordinate and teach discipleship training programs for, for basically Middle Eastern believers in a Muslim country. And so we're not going to use her name as well. But people who would uh, really pay a price if it was really uh, understood uh, what they're doing. And so you're a part, when you give, of giving to these things, and we're making sure that we try to make that as, an effective, as effective as possible. And that's the way we go or send. And third, I want to close with this. To those nearby, live an integrated and balanced life between churched and unchurched people. So what I mean by that is this. And this is something you're always going to hear from me because the reality is I didn't go into ministry um, for really any more than one motivation. Um, I would have been happy being a corporate lawyer or being on Wall Street. has great appeal to me. The reason I went into ministry is because the Bible talks about hell. That's it. That is it. If it wasn't for that, you wouldn't see me next week. That's it. And so one of my greatest concerns for church and for church people is that we have a culture that attracts people who don't necessarily believe what we believe. So that means creating an environment where, where people can come into our connecting groups and maybe we're not doing a deep study on Romans because that might not be a way to attract them, but maybe we're doing a study on marriage or family or apologetics to, to think through our ministries from the, from the point of an outsider. One of the things that uh, Aaron and I really want to start, and my wife has been involved with this, is a mental health care ministry that we could have here, which there's so much of a need, and it's so hard to get help uh, in Canada if you have those issues, and it's so expensive. To have a place where people can really have their needs met and create a support environment for people who may be, may be Christians but maybe outside of faith. So trying to figure out these bridges where we can connect people with the church community. But that means we all have to be committed to not being part of a holy huddle, to recognizing that we don't want all of our friends to be Christians. We want a lot of our friends to be people outside of faith. So Jojo, I'm just gonna ask you the question so you can be the bad guy. Can a Christian isolate themselves from the world and be a faithful Jesus follower? Well, if you know the Jesus in the scriptures, the person who truly loves others and loves us, you cannot follow his teachings and understand how good he is and not want other people to know him. If I could just share one quote that I found was really powerful. It's by Atheist Pendulek, a magician, who actually did a video when he made a response, or when he was given a Bible by a Christian sharing his faith. And this is what he said. He said, I don't agree with that Christian, but I respect him. Because I know that he may, what he may believe is false, but he believes so strongly that if I don't become a Christian, I'm going to go to hell. And how much do you have to hate someone to not give them a solution that will save their life? I've actually seen that video, read that story. It's fascinating. I've actually seen Penn and Teller in person too. But anyway, that's another issue. But that's an atheist saying they respect people who witness and they don't respect people who don't. So we need to make this a part of who we are. So to those nearby, the people we live with, people we work with, people we share community with, we need to create balance in our lives where we're loving them as a, as a way to reach them for Jesus, and we also have our church community that we're trying to bring them into.
Well, would you please thank my two guests today for, for joining us? Thanks, guys. The check is in the mail. And uh, literally, because I forgot, sorry. All right, so we'll take care of them. But we're so grateful for their participation uh, in our ministry here. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we thank you that Jesus Christ came into this world as the Son of God to be our Savior, to pay the penalty for our sins, and because of his great sacrifice for us, to, to guide us as the Lord of our lives, to our best possible existence. And our best possible existence happens to be living for Jesus, even if it means persecution, even if it means hardship. But it's the way. It's the way you want us to live. And a part of being a Christ follower is saying, we want to live the way you want us to live. Help us to be the kind of people who are inviting others, inviting others to know you, inviting others to follow you, so that all may know that Jesus is the way. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.